Don't you ever be sad Only don't me When the times get bad When the day comes You are down In a river of trouble I'm about to drown But just hold on Those two 
made me go on a, a multi-year binge of movies from the 70s and B movies, uh, drive-in movies that that uh, were, were starting to be captured on DVD as that medium became popular. Uh, and I became, like I said, a huge Quentin Tarantino fan. The, as it stands, Pulp Fiction is actually one of the ones I like the least because as, as I would go on and he would go on as a filmmaker, I came to appreciate some of his other films a lot more. Reservoir Dogs being one of my personal favorites. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's one of his best works. Um, these last couple, Inglorious Bastards, I thought was terrific. I abs- I love. I think that's his best. Personally speaking, I think Inglorious Bastards is Tarantino's true masterpiece. Uh, agreed. I think, I think it's one of his best ones. Um, I love Django Unchained. I didn't uh, like it. More, I didn't like it more than Inglorious Bastards, but I absolutely loved Django Unchained. Didn't get the chance to see it in the movies, unfortunately. We watched it on cable, and I kicked myself for having missed it in the theaters. Um, I like Jackie Brown, but then again, I was also a big, big fan of black exploitation films and Elmore Leonard books. So, you know, whatever. Um, but so I was really looking forward to The Hateful Eight, especially after what I saw him do with Django Unchained. And I don't know if I'm let down or I, I think underwhelmed. It was would proper would be the proper term I would use. I was underwhelmed by the hateful eight, and that's not the there's thing a, that the hateful there's eight. Quentin, uh, sorry, there's a Ned Flanders quote I want to throw at you after you mention that. <laughs> um, and that's not to say that it's a bad movie because it's not. Uh, I actually think this makes a this makes a better stage play than it does a movie. Only then you you, you lose out on the absolutely breathtaking and gorgeous. Uh, um, it's imagery, the uh, the scenes, the um, what am I? Come on, help me out. Cinematography. There we go. The cinematography, which is a which is a star in and of itself of this movie. Uh, and as but as we, we'll talk about it, there were certain elements of this movie where I I just sort of banged my head against the wall, going, "Why? Why is this happening?" Um, not the least of which was I don't ever want to hear the N word. And I'm somebody who uses the N-word. Not in a gross, you know, attacking way. I mean, like, the way black people use it. I use it that way, too, among my friends. Or at least I used to. Those friends don't, don't and, live in Well, Canada. and you've quoted... You use it in quotations frequently. Right. Um, I'm, I, I'm in no way... I grew up among, uh, grew up among black kids. Went to school. Uh, went to college and elementary school full of black kids. Love black people was quoted as saying, "I wish black people did better in the United States." To one of my bosses, who was a black woman, you know, I, I'm I'm out there anyone to take away my race card from me, but and so I'm no manby pamby when it comes to the N word, both used, you know, the way that Quentin Tarantino uses it or whatever. And by the end of this movie, I was so tired of hearing it, among other words that were used, that I was like, you know what? Even he's now gone too far. It just, Vic, I, I want to start off by saying the worst part about this movie is that it just seemed like an excuse to overuse the N word. <laughs> and, and, and by the end of it, I was like, ugh, I don't, I don't even want to hear this anymore. So that's my, that's my initial sort of introduction to Quentin Tarantino and the Hateful Eight. Well, when it comes to Tarantino, he's a very divisive filmmaker in a lot of ways. Certainly, some of his films are quite divisive. Uh, 
this is going to sound terrible, but the first movie of his I ever saw in theaters was probably uh, Death Proof, which I saw as part of the you know, Grindhouse double feature that he, did, he and Robert Rodriguez did. Love and Death Proof. That's just not the movie you want to be introduced to Tarantino in because it underscores one of the severe, I don't want to say problems. Cause that's, it's not a problem, but one of the hurdles that needs to be cleared within his movies. And that is you, he needs actors who understand his dialogue because for Quentin Tarantino writes the best dialogue in film right now, period. Full stop. Uh, I honestly can't even think of a close second. But if you have a cast of actors who don't know how to work with that, things kind of fall flat. And there, that's a big problem with Death Proof is outside of Kurt Russell, who is awesome, you have a lot of younger actors and actresses who, have, who struggle to get out from under the weight of that dialogue. And the second one I ever saw of his was Inglorious Bastards. And Christoph Waltz is perhaps the most perfect deliverer of Tarantino's dialogue ever. Now, I know all the people who, you know, I mean, Samuel Jackson has been in more of his movies. Uh, you know, Bruce Willis handled it very well. You know, there, there's plenty of other people, but there's just something about the way those two line up. And that, that's my issue with Django is after the sequence where both Leonardo DiCaprio and Christoph Waltz die, the movie kind of falls apart. And a lot of that is because Jamie Foxx is almost incapable of carrying the movie at that particular point in time. But that's a whole other discussion. I need to warn everyone. I said this last, you know, the last time we were, or not last week, but the week before when we reviewed Star Wars. I warned everyone about spoilers, even though I maintain you don't see Star Wars for a plot. Well, here's you see Quentin Tarantino movies for plot. So I'm warning everyone right now. If you haven't seen this movie yet, and you're listening to us, we're going to spoil everything. If you're not okay with that, this is on-demand audio. If you're listening live, thank you. Uh, you can stop. You can find us later. iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Stitcher. Mark will probably upload this to YouTube. It, we've got... You can find us after the fact. But we are going to discuss you know, the film in depth, and that's going to include spoiling things. And in plot and story, you know, again, in Star Wars, they don't matter all that much. In a Tarantino movie, they're kind of the sum total of what you're getting. So be aware, spoilers are inbound. All right. Uh, I Man, I almost hesitate to try to do like a the kind of comprehensive, well not comprehensive, but the kind of synopsis I normally do because this movie is nearly three hours long. And, <laughs> man... All right, I'm going to do my best here, so everyone kind of bear with me. Well, hang on. It's actually not that hard of a plot. I can do this in 50 words or less. It's really not a complicated plot. All right. Uh, Kurt Russell, who is a bounty hunter and 
I am envious of Kurt Russell now for another reason, because that man grows the most glorious facial hair. The acting, that was, he does with, the acting he does with the mustache is spectacular. There's a, there's a point in the stagecoach where he actually punctuates a sentence by, like, grabbing his mustache, <laughs> like, twirling it or something. It's so – it's magnificent. It's one it of is. those – it's one of those acting choices where it separates a, a reader of, of a reader of script from an actor. And, yeah. and you know, Kurt Russell, you know, we talk about on this show, like people like, like Hayden Christensen, you know, sort of struggle with things and, you know, or maybe they haven't gotten the right part. There are people who, no matter what you give them, will act their way through it because they really are masters of their craft. And Kurt Russell I think is underrated and underappreciated, but he is a master of his craft. I would agree with you there. Uh, he is, he uh, plays a bounty hunter who has in his possession, a fugitive played by Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, he wants to bring her in alive because it's his gimmick. I mean, that really is like the sum total of this year. And there's actually a big discussion between him and Samuel L. Jackson, who is also a bounty hunter, but, they established that he was a oh major, wasn't it, during the Civil War? And, Black major, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about Walton Goggins' performance in this we, because oh, it yeah. is a, Look, it's a tour de force. The acting in this, the acting in this film is universally excellent, and Walton Goggins still kind of stands out. Yeah, Walton Goggins more so than even Kurt Russell or Samuel L. Jackson carries this film on his shoulders and and just runs around the the uh, runs around the pool with it. He he is, and I'm not just saying that because I was a huge fan of Walton Goggins and Justified or or uh, The Shield. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, I, I I mean, as much as he was great in those things, I always preferred some of the other actors to him. In this one, he's so good. He's he's one of the highlights of this movie. Yeah. In any case, the anyway. reason why I brought that up is, is, yes, he's a major, and I remember that because he kept referring to <laughs> he kept referring he to Daniel Jackson's black major. <laughs> yeah, he's com- uh, Kurt Russell has commissioned a stage cl- uh, stagecoach to bring this prisoner worth $10,000 in to collect the bounty. He stumbles across Samuel L. Jackson, who has a pile of bodies worth about $8,000. Uh, the two had a previous acquaintanceship, not partnership, but they knew each other. Uh, so they tie his dead bodies to the stagecoach. Uh, they allow he allows Samuel Jackson to join him. They stumble across Walton Goggins a few miles later. He he joins in. They all hold up to wait out a blizzard in a place in this uh, haberdashery, which is used ironically in this instance, and. There they find another stagecoach with you know four other people that are holed up there. Uh, bad things start happening relatively quickly. One of them is Bruce Dern. And if you're like me and you were raised on John Wayne movies, there's nothing sweeter than watching Bruce Dern die. So I got a real <laughs> kick out of Samuel L. Jackson inciting him to draw first so he can kill him. But Bruce Dern is there, uh, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth. Ah, God bless Tim Roth. <laughs> that man. I-, I got a soft spot for Tim Roth. 
the man known as you know Mexican Bob, who I swore I, I honestly for most of this movie I thought that was Channing Tatum in a really good makeup job. <laughs> I forgot Channing Tatum was even in the movie until uh, until he shoots until until they pan down and he shoots Samuel Jackson in the nuts. I didn't know he was in it beforehand, and quite frankly, was better off not knowing. But he dies. <laughs> Okay. Well, look, I maintain there are certain actors who I have personally just such kind of a dislike for that any film wherein they die is automatically given at least a passing grade. So, yes, they they kill Gambit in the movie. He doesn't last very long. That movie's going to tank. Shut up. Get on with it. Uh, but no, as another example, Owen Wilson is eaten by one of the snakes in Anaconda. Anaconda immediately becomes a guilty pleasure because I get to watch Owen Wilson die. Moving on. He also, he also dies in Armageddon. Just be another reason I like that movie. Anyway. Uh, again, the blizzard hits. Bad things start happening. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion going around. Kurt Russell uh, believes that at least one of the other people in this location is trying to free his prisoner. Samuel L. Jackson kind of has his you know, antenna perked up for a variety of reasons that he explains later. Just everyone's mistrustful, and then again, you've got Bruce Dern as an old Confederate general who Sam, who doesn't like Samuel L. Jackson because he's black and was a Union officer. And it's weird trying to sum up a Quentin Tarantino movie because so much of the genius, in many ways, of what happens is done in the dialogue and through the acting. But can I try? Uh, no, this is my yeah. spiel. <laughs> Let me get through this it, your, then you can give your summation. This is your racket. I got it. So I'll shut up. I'll be good. I, I interrupt you enough. I don't. I'm not offended or anything. Get on with it. Uh, someone poisons the coffee at one point. This leads to Kurt Russell and their stagecoach driver dying, uh, spitting up you know gallons of blood, which is pretty great, by the way. Uh, this leads to a big kind of, uh, section of the story where there's a big whodunit and Samuel Jackson and uh, Walton Goggins trying to figure out who they can trust and whatnot. Turns out they can't trust any of them. Uh, Samuel Jackson kills Mexican Bob, at which point Channing Tatum fires up from under the floorboards, shoots Samuel Jackson square in the nuts from under. That's a tough shot to pull off, by the way. There's not a lot of room for error. There's just not a lot of body space when you're firing up from underneath someone. It's a really tough shot. Uh, we get kind of a Mexican standoff after that where Walton Goggins and Samuel Jackson have both been shot and are bleeding profusely but have the only guns. Uh, they bring Channing Tatum up, who is Jennifer Jason Lee's sister. Samuel L. Jackson brother. promptly shoots him in the back of the head. Brother, brother, Channing Tatum is a boy. Brother, brother. Sorry, excuse me. If you say so, Mark. I'll do, get it because he looks effeminate? I'll do, Mona Me. Oh, that. <laughs> anyway. Don't do it. Move on. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Anyway, he comes up uh, again. He comes out of the basement. Samuel Jackson shoots him in the back of the head. It's great. Uh, they all wind up shot and dying. Uh, except somehow for Jennifer Jason Lee, who has been abused by Kurt Russell, 
Uh, she's had her front teeth knocked out. She's been shot in the foot, but she's going to survive this. And as Walton Goggins and Samuel L. Jackson are bleeding to death, they decide, no, she's not going to survive. We're going to hang her because she was captured by John Ruth, who always brings his uh, bounties in alive to hang. And we feel it to be, you know, appropriate to the circumstance. So they hang her. Uh, Walton Goggins reads a fake letter from Abraham Lincoln that Samuel L. Jackson has been passing off as legitimate. Uh, there's a point earlier in the movie where it's revealed to be a fake, but he reads that uh, and it has to deal with some, again, race relations is what not, and whatnot. And they both, we fade out and they're both going to then bleed and freeze to death in the blizzard as it, because they've got nothing else again. They've both been shot in major blood vessels. It's a minor miracle they survived that long. Now, you missed a major element of this. Uh, Walton Goggins' character, Chris Mannix, um, when we meet him, he is revealed to be the upcoming sheriff of Red Rock. But his backstory is that he, along with his pappy, his daddy. By the way, can someone just write a movie about Walter Goggins and his daddy? Because I'm tired of hearing about it. Okay, uh, you hear about it in The Shield. You hear about it in Justified. We're now hearing about it again. Walter Walton Goggins and his daddy need to be dealt with in a feature-length motion picture. And then I never want to hear the word daddy out of that man's mouth again. Anywho, Walton Goggins and his daddy, um, after the Civil War has ended, still ran around as a renegade group of ex-Confederate soldiers killing black folks. Which was so, not at all uncommon in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. So imagine the tension. You have Kurt Russell, who uh, is a bounty hunter, chained to a woman who is, you know, who is hip to Samuel Jackson's ex-Union officer, Jive, but doesn't, really, but doesn't want any competitors, doesn't want any guff uh, as far as getting this woman to Red Rock. And then, so you have those three people. And then you ha- and then and so of course Daisy Domergue uh, is a uh, redneck racist who keeps inciting Samuel L. Jackson. So you have that tension in the stagecoach. Then you introduce Chris Maddox, who is an who is a Confederate and a racist all his own right. Um, and that's kind of the arc of the story: is that while he is in fact a Confederate and a racist, he is also a lawman, or at least he's going to be. And at the end of the day, it's him and Samuel Jackson who dispense justice, you know, sort of rising above racial tensions to do what's right. And that is hang Daisy, who was a hateful murderer. Yeah. Um, which is fine and all. I was talking to Winfrey before we started this review, and I said, I think it would have been a stronger story if at least there had been one survivor to tell the tale, um, you could have done it as a as a real tragedy. This is the sort of you know kick you in the kick you in the gut of your uh, of your body, sort of icky feeling tragedy where Daisy survives and gets away, um, leaving all these men to die. Or you could have gone the other way, which is have Chris Mannix survive. You know, Walton Walton Goggins a Confederate and a racist who rises above it all to become a good lawman. And he brings all these dead bodies into red rock roll credits. But by killing everybody, you know, I I just felt like 
this sort of the one of these Shakespearean tragedies where we didn't know what to do with the characters, so we killed them all. And it that left me wanting. Um, I didn't feel like that was I'm sort of starting at the end of the movie and working my way backwards here, but I didn't feel like that was a very satisfying ending. You know, at least you know, like you look at think about the endings of like Django Unchained. Django wins. Okay. Django, Django the very satisfying ending. Our hero wins. You know, we, we see him from a pup grow into a man into a superhero, and at the end of the day he beats he beats the bad guys. Great. That perfect. And, and at the end of Inglorious Bastards, Christoph Waltz may have gotten away, but he but ultimately he, he loses when they fucking carve a swastika into his forehead. You know, I, the, the, there's just something about, uh, this was almost like a non-ending. It was like, it, went, it, it was going, it was going, it was going, and then it went off a fucking cliff. You're like, whoa, what happened to the movie? So I, I was underwhelmed. Um, because I, I'll say this. It's a B-musement movie. <laughs> the movie looks gorgeous. The cinematography is a star in and of itself. It looks amazing. I didn't get to see it in 70 millimeter because I ain't got that kind of time, Rabbit. But um, what in what I saw looked spectacular. Quentin Tarantino is a master craftsman behind the camera. The acting, the dialogue, was my one quibble about the use of foul language uh, to the point where it was getting annoying. Um, really, what, what was fantastic. I the give and take the perpetuation of narrative through dialogue. No one does it better than Quentin Tarantino. Um, some would call it masturbatory. I, I don't... I, um, it moved the plot along just fine. There just wasn't much of a plot to be had. You're talking about, a, you're talking about a, essentially a murder mystery in one room. So, you know, that, that was the thing. It was like, hey, hey we, have, we have two people who died by poisoning. You know, who did it? And then within seconds, you know it's got to be, you know, one of these individuals. And it turns out it's all of them. Who can, you know, it's like, all right, that was, you know, devoid of any tension at all. Um, but, uh, but like I said, looks good, sounds good, acted good. It just, the story in and of itself is, is underwhelming. And the fact that it's a thesis on race relations set in Reconstruction America um, as told through this who done it was kind of an odd an odd choice to me. Um, I feel like one of those things kind of had to go or had to be minimized or changed in some way for this to have had maximum effect. And and, that, and that's really it. Um, I mean, we can get into some of the some of the more specifics here, but that's kind of my whole review of this thing. I've got some stuff up here from Rotten Tomatoes that we can get into, like we always do, uh, and some other stuff about how him and him and Disney went head to head, plus how the script changed after it was leaked. But that's kind of where I stand. I, I just I went on the journey. I enjoyed the journey, and when the journey was over, I I looked up and said, "Was this trip really necessary?" Robert. I understand your perspective there, and to a large degree, I agree with you. It was a very uh, – the ending was very odd to me. And I agree with your – you know, 
I almost hate second guessing, you know, filmmakers who have such clear artistic vision. But when it comes to, you know, understand how to get the most out of your ending, I'm not entirely sure everyone dying in this instance was the correct way to do it. Funny you should uh, mention that. Because in the, uh, I'm now on uh, blogs.indywire.com, and uh, originally it was only Chris Maddox who winds up surviving, which I think would have been great. <laughs> I would have been perfectly happy with that. It's, uh, I suppose part of that might be, you know, it's difficult to second guess it because there's so many things that changed after it was leaked. There's also things that just got changed. Yeah, as with any artistic project, and film certainly qualifies as that, things change as you go along, as the narrative becomes stronger, more cohesive in your mind, uh, you know, things along that line. And it's it, it's just a, a really kind of odd ending in that sense, but at the same time, I think there is merit in the narrative in the sense that, you know, first of all, when we're all dying, we're all the same color type thing. You know, it, there's no, you know, racism for Mannix in this case is generally a byproduct of, it, it's not the environment really where his heart is. I was going to say, the in, racism is a byproduct of the environment in which he, he lives. Yeah, as soon as, you know, the proverbial feces hits the ventilation system, that goes out the window with him. Right. And it goes out the window very, very quickly. It's it's really funny, actually, because up until the point where uh, Kurt Russell and Opie, or AP, or whatever the fuck his name is, the Kate Stage driver. OB? Like, yeah. like a doctor? Okay. Um, up until the point where Kurt Russell and OB... Uh, died from, from poisoning, he was, you know, he, he was provoking. So he's the one, he, he's the one that outs him as having a fake Lincoln letter. He's provoking him the entire time. I mean, there, there comes a point where, where it, it's actually Walton Goggins' character who, who's the, who, do, who does so much provoking of Samuel Jackson that Samuel Jackson in turn provokes Bruce Dern into committing suicide by cop. Essentially, um, yeah. Which, which we'll get to in a moment because I need to talk about that. Uh, what led to that? By the way, I'm um, sure. I've, why am I not surprised that of all the scenes you feel compelled to talk about, that one strikes you fancy? <laughs> well, it, it was a rough scene. Any case, um, so he, uh, you know, up to that point, he's a real villain of the movie. But when, but, but. When uh, Samuel L. Jackson starts to figure out that that there, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, and he's like, no, 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 one of this isn't right. This, this whole thing sticks. Um, and the line is, "It's who made the stew that got me thinking." And that's when he realizes that this is a, this is some sort of setup that this that this haberdashery isn't what it appears to be. So there's more going on here than just the poison coffee. There's more going on here than then who's working with this girl, this whole habit, you know, why is this haberdashery missing its owner? And, you know, and the story that's given to him by Bob doesn't make any sense. Um, so 
It's uh, what I'm getting to is once it's established that Samuel Jackson is, for all intents and purposes, the lawman trying to figure out a mystery. Goggins is right there with him. He's following. It's he's actually following his lead. Like he doesn't like. It's it's really funny the way it, the way it's portrayed. Like Goggins doesn't. Uh, let's call him his character name. Mannix doesn't realize he's being had. That this is a setup. And when, when and when Warren figures it out, he's like he's not really taking charge of anything. He's following Warren's lead the entire time, and he doesn't really take back command of the situation until Warren's been shot and Domague offers him a deal to basically shoot Warren and uh, and let them get away. So it, you know, so in terms of, of racism, once. Once there was a threat to his life, and and, and Warren was an ally, race, you know the fact that he was black didn't matter anymore. It's you know, the old saying that there's no you know, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Right. No such thing as a racist if the only guy to watch your back is his skin's a different color. Right. Your racism vanishes immediately. Well, it's funny because you know I keep. I keep reading reviews about this movie. It's like, oh, it's all the role of despicable people. What does, other than being a jerk, what does Maddox do in this movie that's so that's so hateful? I mean, well, you've got I mean, you've got four or five people who are your who are your real villains who are trying to help the you know Daisy escape. Daisy by herself is a villain, and then uh, you know you've, you've got the stagecoach driver who's nothing, who's <laughs> just a poor schlub. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I mean, Daniel Kurt Jackson Russell's is, not exactly the you know the white knight here, but he's on no. the, he's not a bad guy. And you know, and it's so funny because you look at him throughout the movie, you know, punching her at every turn and being a jerk to her. It, first of all, in the in that time, we we're talking Reconstruction, you know, post Civil War Reconstruction, United States of America. It was and they're in Wyoming. Might not actually be a. I mean, they're in Wyoming, which might not actually be a state at the time, depending on exactly the year that we're talking about. Right. So, I mean, you you can't sort of impose your your, your 2015 um, views values. on these characters values on these characters. It doesn't really work. Oh. Not to mention the fact that he's chained to a criminal. I mean, when Spike <laughs> Lee threw his fit about the use of the N word in Django, I wanted to punch him. It's like, wait a minute. Right. We're not allowed to write believable dialogue to a time when that was a common part of the vernacular. The, the movie takes place. What's the in matter the, with the movie, you? The movie takes place in you know in on a plantation in the South before <laughs> the Civil War. What do you expect? Yeah. What, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not 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 valid. Oh God. Um. It's usually the word that precedes Southern in um. Not antiquated. Um, it'll come to me later on in the middle of the night, and I'll scream it out. My mother, my wife will hit me. Um, Antebellum. That's the word. Yeah. So we're talking. We're, we're talking about antebellum South here. Maybe once or twice they're gonna use the N word. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. It's yeah. <laughs> it's just silly, but. And again, is Kurt Russell a bad guy? I mean, again, do we like, especially in 2015, do we approve of the notion of, you know, a bounty hunter or a lawman abusing a criminal? Absolutely not. 
care. Oh, oh, However, we even, hang on, we even kind of sneer at it in state prisons in Florida. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. But let's cons- but again, let us consider the circumstances wherein the film takes place. Here's Kurt Russell chained to someone who has done murder, is and murder to the extent that there is a substantial bounty on her head. Uh, she's part of a gang that is all worth, and they're worth more than something like they're mo- worth more than ten thousand dollars a piece. Now, as you as is known, the more heinous and prolific your crimes, the more the, you know, the higher your reward is. So when it's revealed that her brother has a price on his head of $50,000. This is not a good guy. He's got to contend with that. He's got to contend with, you know, just all of this other stuff. And he, and again, the other thing there is you didn't have anywhere near the law enforcement presence and capabilities back then that you do now. You had, you know, again, your town sheriff, maybe a marshal, and there's two guys you know, and their deputies, so, you know, three or four, for a town of, you know, several hundred people. You're severely outnumbered in those instances. And, it, it again, it was when you say it was just a different time, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, but so no, I, I mean, so, so the call Kurt Russell sort of hateful, I think, is a sort of a misjudgment of his character. Um now, You're an angry person, but uh <laughs> Well let's let's talk about Warren, Samuel Jackson, who spends you know, who I think starts out very sympathetically. Here you have, you know, a major uh a major in the union who allegedly is drummed out after burning down a prison camp that ends up killing more Union soldiers. So he's allegedly drummed out of the Union army. Uh, and he goes into bounty hunting. He con- he invents a Lincoln letter in order to give him sway with uh, white folks that he meets along you know along his journey. He rises to the point of almost hero in this story by being the one to sort of figure things out and you know and start solving some of the mystery and um, and then you get this exchange between him and Bruce Dern which is basically a long strung out murder. Okay. Yeah. It's like after, after an hour and a half of being, of having his nipples tweaked by Walton Goggins, he decides I'm going to kill this Confederate. This well, let's be fair. Term. They established that there is some history between Bruce Dern and Samuel L. Jackson. This isn't just a random old guy. He decides he wants to kill. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but Bruce, but at that point, Bruce Dern was no, Bruce Dern's not even the one antagonizing him. He's, he's saying nothing to him. And we'll, we'll figure out why later on. You know, <clears throat> we, we see why later on in the narrative. But Bruce Dern, for the most part, kept quiet and, and didn't really talk to him. And it seemed like it, it seemed like what he does to Bruce Dern comes out of spite, which was basically this. Yeah. He realizes that... Um, Samuel Jackson realizes that back in... Back aways, he had come across Bruce Dern's son, and and here's where the plot thickens. Uh, he he made Bruce Dern's son walk two hours buck naked in the snow, and when his son begged him for a blanket, he made him give him a blowjob, and never gave him the blanket. 
This, of and course, shot him anyway. and this, of course, angers Bruce Dern, who pulls a gun, and Samuel Jackson shoots him in quote unquote self defense. Now, well, technically, it was self defense. Now, the guy pulled the gun first. Again, <laughs> I. It was very hard for me to be sympathetic towards the Samuel Jackson character after that. Um, on the one hand, because he's so charismatic and because, you know, he is the lone black guy, you know, in a world where people hate black people. Okay, you have my sympathy based on that. That got abusive. And I don't know what is in Quentin Tarantino's psyche that he thought, you know what the world needs. The world needs to see a white man on his knees blowing a black guy uh, to make up for all the racial injustice in the world. I, I, I thought it was a misuse of the character's goodwill. And I'm going to preface this whole, not preface because I've already started talking. I'm going to punctuate this entire discussion by saying, if you are not better than those who are uh, besieging you, then I have no reason to cheer you. You're, you're just as bad. And the fact that your, your race suffers doesn't really make a difference to me. He, he straight up murders the guy, basically, after torturing him. And, and I'm sorry, face raping somebody is, still, is torture. So maybe we were supposed to cheer that. I know there were some people laughing in the theater. I just sat there watching like, oh, well, (laughs) there went my my appreciation for that particular hero, and now I can't even call him a hero. And I wasn't sad when he died. But I was like, good. (laughs) The only person I cheered for in this entire movie was, was was, uh, was Walton Goggins' character, Chris Maddox. He was the only decent person in the movie by the time it was over. And I was sad when Kurt Russell's character died. And I loved him. I thought he was great. And I didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Yeah. And then I was sad when at the end of it, you know, you knew Chris Maddox was going to die. But if his intention was for you to, you know, to cheer, like, oh, here's this moment where the the black guys got it over on the white guys. Yeah, but but by sinking to that level, if not even worse, isn't isn't a reason to cheer him. That's just, that's just my takeaway. Like I don't, you know. Now I could be completely off, and it was just supposed to be, you know. Isn't wouldn't it be fun to see a white guy blow a black guy? And I'm completely overblowing this. In which case, the answer, in my opinion, is no, not really. <laughs> I wasn't particularly entertained by that scene. So I don't, well, I don't know. As someone who's had hypothermia in the past, it. Uh, <laughs> That's your takeaway, huh? (laughs) Well, he talks a little bit, Samuel L. Jackson's character at the beginning of that is he tells Bruce Dern, don't judge your boy too harshly. You've never been cold like he was. Now, I've never been naked in the mountains of Wyoming in the middle of winter, and it's so cold that there's not even cloud cover. I've never been that cold. But I lived in North Dakota for eight months, ten months, about a year. I don't know. Somewhere in that area. I've been on more than a few campouts that took place in the winter, and I've been cold. I've never been that cold, but I've been cold before. 
So it uh, again, a tad unsettling. I think one of the greatnesses of Tarantino's writing is that he does not give you traditional heroes. And there's a lot of merit in that. I mean, uh, you talking about him here. Let me ask you a question, because, again, I, I've sort of I've stated where I stand on this, and I'm not budging. But I'm curious. Right. You, would, you would still call him a hero after all that? After essentially knowing that this character face rapes a guy and then lets him die, then tells his dad about it in order to incite that dad to pull a gun so he can kill him, so he can commit murder. Do you still think he's a hero? No, I still think he's the protagonist. Let me rephrase that. Okay. Uh, Protagonist and hero are not interchangeable terms. For some reason, we tend to think they are, but they're not. I was going to say, I'm okay with protagonist. I'm not okay with hero. No. And bear in mind, when I say he gives you non-traditional heroes, I don't mean heroes in the, you know, paragon of virtue sense. I mean heroes in the, again, protagonist sense of the word. I I mean, as an example, uh, Brad Pitt's character from Inglorious Bastards is not a hero in the traditional sense of the word. He is still kind of the guy we wind up following and in many cases cheering for, but consider that this is a man who perpetrated you know, not uh, again, a war of terror in the very real sense of that word on the German army has a prisoner beaten to death with a baseball bat for refusing to give up information about his army and his friends and where they're positioned, and has every, at every opportunity has his as the bodies of people he has killed scalped. This is not a hero. But he is still the guy that we follow, and in, and to the extent that we are capable of, given the information and circumstances we're presented with, the one we cheer for. This is a very bleak movie in terms of, you know, the traditional hero-villain dynamic, because there's not a hero. There's a bunch of characters, some of which you sympathize with to varying degrees, for varying reasons. And I find that to be extremely interesting filmmaking. And the fact that he can pull it off, that Tarantino can pull it off so consistently is somewhat remarkable. But for you to say that, you know, you have no more sympathy for that character after that point and what I understand. It's a, again, it's a terrible thing that his character did at that, to that point. You're not supposed to have sympathy for it or cheer it. I think it's meant to simply express that, again, here's a guy who you know, we are cheering for and rooting for. He's still not a nice person. See, I don't know. I don't, <clears throat> you know, I, Quentin Tarantino is, is speaking to his audience <clears throat> about this movie. And, th- and that's not one scene where he's mute. He's clearly saying something. I just, either I'm not getting what he's saying or I'm not particularly fond of it. And I haven't quite figured out what that is yet. Like I said, I, my initial reaction to that scene, and this is why I wanted to spend some time talking about it, 
we should also talk about Daisy because we've spent no time talking about her. Um, eh. She's a major part of this movie. But, um, she's a major plot point. But I wanted to spend some time talking about this because he's clearly saying something to to the patrons of this of this movie. And like I said, if it's basically like you know, for all the years of mis of misuse of black people, you know, for all that they've suffered, um, for all the in, you know the systemic racism and injustice. You know, he, here is a sort of a visual representation of black people getting over on white people. Here, this is, our, you, know, we, you know, we will make you suffer. And this is seen as an expression of that. It was the wrong expression, in my opinion. Well, yeah, as we talk about it, if I had to guess at what he's saying, he is very deliberately attempting not to cast Samuel Jackson's character as, again, a paragon of virtue. There, and, there's a movie. There's a movie that came out with with um, oh fuck this face, uh, John Travolta, and um, ugh, who's this Sidney Poitier? Oh god, I can't remember the name of the movie now. But it's one of these where where everything's turned upside down and white people are in the position of black people and black people are the you know are the ruling class. Um, it's a stupid movie, but it. But, it's a great idea executed poorly, and I say that often on this podcast. Um, I'll look it up in a second. But uh, like a movie like that, at least, I think is a better way of expressing the, you know, here's black people getting getting over on white people, or, um, you know, or even, you know, and you didn't see the movie, but even a movie like Straight Outta Compton, you know, Ice Cube, who has been burned every which way but loose, uh, taking a bat to the uh, the record producer's office after you know after being screwed by everybody you know and just just going crazy and you know and, and smashing everything with a bat. I thought, okay, I get it. I sympathize with Ice Cube. Th- this to me, you know, face raping a guy and that's what it was seemed grotesque and. Uh, it's just unnecessary. Like we get it, you know, black people have had it rough in this country, but that's beyond the pale. At least in my opinion. Well, which might be the point of it entirely is to, you know, there's what exactly do you want in terms of rec- of compensation or recompense for this? Is this what you want? <laughs> Is this the way? Is this what you want? Is this what you like? Is this the way you like it? Uh, again, I, I understand your point, and I, I, again, I suppose my only, not even counter, but my perspective is such that I think he was again trying not. Part of it was he was trying not to turn that character into a white knight. Pardon the pun. Hmm. I mean, again, I. Uh, there's a very subversive. His, I was gonna say maybe like of, that was his attempt to sort of throw shade on that character, you know, because up up to that point he is too good, he's too smart, he's too charismatic, he's too everything. So we'll have him do something really, really dastardly. So at least now he's got, for lack of a better phrase, some color. Well, some of it is that. Some of it is also, I think, trying to show that you know this is a man who has been damaged by what he has seen and is a very vengeful person when it comes to people he has perceived to have wronged him. 
And let's be fair, going out of your way to go to Wyoming to try and cut the man's head off to collect a bounty. Yeah, I, I'm going with you wronged him a little bit there. <laughs> but uh, what I was saying about with Tarantino is he has this really kind of interesting subversive way of casting heroes. Uh, not heroes, but uh, of looking at things. Again, going to Inglorious Bastards, the... American group that is led by Brad Pitt is committing what would be considered by you know nowadays and even back then war crimes and war atrocities fall you know, fall under their definition but because they're Americans doing it to Nazis part of us wants to cheer when if we look at it objectively you know they're doing terrible things I guess on my scale of horrible things to do to a human being out of revenge uh, face raping is near the top and scalping near the bottom. Which is perfectly fair and reasonable. <laughs> you know, just you know, torturing a man and letting him freeze to death, but, rape, but face raping him first and giving him hope that, that, that you'll save him. Worse than, much worse than scalping someone who was going to die anyway. Well, or, again, having a prisoner beaten to death with a baseball bat. Again, um, prisoner had surrendered. Sure. Yeah, you, you got it there. Let's let's talk about let, – let's switch tracks here. Um, I think we've – speaking of beating with a bat, I think we've beaten this one to, to death. Um, no, but to your point, I agree that it does kind of kill a lot of the sympathy for the character – at the same time, I think it's a very telling moment about him in that this is not Superman. This is not your paragon of virtue. This is, his again, his own fully realized independent character, regardless of what you would like to, it, regardless of morals or ideals or philosophies that you would like to foist on him. So let's talk about David Domague. I wanted her to die a lot faster than she did. <laughs> well, look, credit where credit's due. Jennifer Jason Lee pulls off that character very well. Yes, wonderfully acted. She she has some great dialogue, and she spits. I also venom cheered every hilarious. time Kurt Russell punched her in the mouth. <laughs> oh boy, and that happens a lot. But if you're ever, uh, I know you don't drink, and I and it's always a it's sort of a gag I do whenever I bring it up. But um, for the rest of you out there, you want to play a fun drinking game. Every time Kurt Russell hits her, <laughs> take a drink. Take a shot. Um, you're a good grief. But yeah, she's she's just a fun character. You know, she. Uh, when I first saw the trailer, and you know, Kurt Russell, you know, ambles into the into the haberdashery. I'm taking this woman to hang, and she does, and she minds being hung. I'm like, oh goodness. <laughs> so we're not taking this seriously, are we? Um, but you know, it's like it's one bit out of an entire movie, and so well, it also um, speaks to her as a character because she's so she has laid out this you know ability to escape. So of course she's going to kind of go along with whatever else happens and kind of needle and mock and you know cajole to the degrees that she can. Because she firmly believes that, okay, by the time we get there, there's a plan in place, I'm going to be out of here, and the joke's going to be on all of you, and I really don't care if I have to go see a dentist to get my two front teeth fixed, because you'll be dead. Right. Well, the worst, 
the worst shot she takes is actually from Samuel Jackson. I think she spits on the Lincoln letter and he fucking gives oh. her a left walk and knocks her out. Of the <laughs> knocks her out. Clean out of the stagecoach and then drags Kurt Russell out because he's chained to her. It was great. <laughs> it was a it was almost cartoonish because I think Kurt Russell actually paused and there was a thought bubble. That well, said, there's oh, a no. those aren't handcuffs in the sense that we know them today very close together. There's a good bit of chain between them. They're more shackles. So he actually has a moment after she's knocked out wherein he gets to process very briefly, oh, crap, I'm still handcuffed to this woman who was just knocked out of a moving stagecoach. <laughs> that was a great scene. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great scenes in this movie. But, uh, yeah, she um, she plays her part very well. She you, 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 She's definitely a villain. You have no sympathy for her. As much as she's beat the shit in this movie and called a bitch and a whore and everything else, there's at no point in this movie where you're like, oh, poor baby. Like, oh, I kind of feel bad for her. No, she's awful. She's awful the entire movie. Again, I wanted her to die sooner. And that's after, again, she's been beaten by Kurt Angle and... Eh, Kurt Angle. Kurt Russell and Samuel. <laughs> Kurt Angle and the documentary. <laughs> Kurt Russell and Samuel L. Jackson. She's been shot a couple of times and had blood vomited on her and the back of her brother's skull blown into her face. I mean, there's all of this horrible stuff that happens to her. And normally, even a villain, when they're put through that much, you get a little bit of sympathy for them. And you never do with her. Even as they're stringing her up, you're just kind of like, good. Right. It's the one, I mean, I, I talked before about the ending's not satisfying. Watching her hang, it actually reminded me of a, of a, of a line from Oz where they're talking about, you know, hanging the... Uh, the I know the, the one line woman, you're talking about. The one woman prisoner and then um, uh, McGinnis, McGalley, McNulty, fucking whatever his name is. Uh, the social worker at the jail, at the jail, now listen to me. The social worker in the prison is going over her options, um, and he says, you know, with hanging, you know, your feet do a little dance, and she goes, yeah, that's how I want to go out. I want to go out dancing, so she opts to be hung. Um, it reminds me of that. Because... Nick Manis, by the way, for those of you who Thank might you. be confused by Mark Slaling. <laughs> I thought I actually said that. Um, McDougal, McBurger, McDuck. Um, yeah. So when so I wa- so I actually watched for that and 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 again just kind of shows you know Quentin Tarantino's attention to detail you know her feet actually do that little dance. Oh end. no! When you start strangling after either way whether you're dropped or hoisted, you start doing your body reflexively does everything it can to relieve the pressure around your neck. Now the natural course of this is your reflex is to jump to push up because that's where the pressure is coming from. So you release it by going up with it. Well, you're being hanged. There's nothing there. But you're still going to dance, kick, flail, and jump to try and release that pressure. It's purely instinctual. Anytime they don't, it's because they're dropped from a sufficient height and with the knot in the correct position to actually break the neck. There's a world of difference between death by hanging and hung by the neck until dead. So um, so I like that. And that was, that part of the of the conclusion was satisfying. But I, you know, but I've talked now at length about the rest of it that I didn't find particularly, uh, particularly entertaining. <laughs> I want to go back to this long time spent in the stagecoach with the four of them: uh, Walter, Walter Gog, Walton Goggins, 
Samuel Jackson, Kurt Russell, and Jennifer Jason Lee. And there's a whole exchange that happens. It's the first time that Walton Goggins starts to try to out uh, Samuel Jackson as you know as a less than perfect Union soldier. And he tell you know and he starts talking about uh, the tale you know of how he uh, burnt down this prison camp and everything got drummed out of the service and all that. Um, <laughs> and he, and I can't remember what the line is, but it, it, it needles it tweaks Samuel Jackson's nipple hard enough that he points the gun at him. And oh, says, the line is. Uh, Forgive me, I'm not going to say the word, but N-words are only – white people are only safe when N-words are scared. Right, and then Samuel Jackson sort of points the gun at him and says – He actually you, cocks the revolver and says, if you start talking that hateful N-word stuff, you can go outside and ride in the cold. No, I'm just happy to be alive, man. I'm going to lean up here against you know, this window but that's the thing. thinking about how happy I am to be alive. No, but you're you're missing the best part of that. He does this shake of his shoulders. It's so perfect. I love this. It was one of my favorite parts in the movie. That's why I'm like, shut up. You're ruining it. He, he does this sort of shimmy. You know, where he's like, oh. It, it, the stagecoach is very confined, and he still manages to kind of weasel his way a little bit further away from Samuel L. Jackson at that moment. <laughs> he's like, y'all just got me talking politics. and I, I didn't want to. I'm just happy to be alive. Y'all saved me. I'm just going to lean over here against this window and think about how happy I am to be alive with the rocking of the stagecoach coax me to sleep. It's so funny because he's so slimy in that, in that little, in that. It's great. He's got the slime of a car salesman. It's awesome. It's like, I just got away with, with basically dragging you and in your entire existence through the mud to the point where you felt the need to shoot me, but I'm going to act like I'm perfectly innocent. It's great. It's the type of heel maneuver that wrestling fans will know that Bobby Heenan used to do all the time. Right. <laughs> it was that good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was really great. I mean, it was one of the highlights. Um, I guess we should, we have, uh, I added another 30 minutes to I this. Saw it. Um, because uh, we were we were sort of going on and on with the with the whole Samuel Jackson thing, we want to talk uh, a little bit about some of the other characters. Yeah, sure, we can talk briefly about a lot of them because uh, again, Kurt Russell is a, an absolute highlight of this movie, and not just because the man can actually grow that kind of facial hair, which makes me again extraordinarily jealous. I am not gifted with great facial hair, so the <laughs> fact that he can. If he so chooses, grow that out whenever he wants to. It just kind of makes me sad. But he does a great job as the character, John Ruth, who's known as the hangman. Because, again, as a bounty hunter, he always brings his bounties in alive. And there's a discussion between him and Samuel L. Jackson about that a little bit. Well, it, which it is says great. in the movie, you know, like, you know, some people just... Some men just got to hang, and some men just, or God, it's like some men. The line is, hang on, I got it. You only have, you only got to hang mean bastards, but mean bastards, you got to hang. Right. Which, which does bring up the notion. Um, as I read through the reviews, they're saying this is a treatise on frontier justice, and I guess it's summed up in that line. But I still, and again, I'll, 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 I'll chalk this up to maybe I'm dumb. But I don't really understand what Quentin Tarantino's point about frontier justice is. It, you know, are we talking 
he's pro-vigilantism. You know, is, is when all is said and done, Princess Leia just needs to start a resistance because the Senate's too busy squabbling. Is that is that his point? You know, I, I think what his I honestly I think his point as it pertains to that is more to do with two things. One, I think it's a pro. If you, I really don't want to bring my own personal politics and belief systems into this review. So I'm doing my best not to do that. But I believe that there's a message within this movie that is very much pro-death penalty. And it's not so much that the death penalty is a proven deterrent to crime or whatnot, and because it isn't. But there are people in this world who we are just better off without. And I don't mean better off without in the sense that stick them in a jail, make you know, pay people to watch them, feed them, clothe them, house them for the next 50 years until they die of cancer. I mean, take them out the back, shoot them in the head, and let's all move on with our lives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this once, and then I'm not going to stop doing it. Everything Robert Winfrey is saying right now is, is going to be pre- prefaced with the, with the phrase, in theory. Yes. Again, that is a, some of that is a bit of my personal philosophy. Some of that is not. Some of that's kind of what I got from the movie. Again, this is not a forum for me to spout right. my so personal we're, we're beliefs. About, we're talking about, we're, we're interpreting Quentin Tarantino, we're, we're attempting to interpret Quentin Tarantino's work. We're all yeah. in 10th grade English. We have this great piece of literature in front of us. And the teacher asks, what does he mean by this? And that's what we're doing I right think now. he means that there are just people that society under any, in any place is better off simply making – again, making an example of is probably the wrong phrase, but it's just better off excising from them permanently. Okay. And there is no more permanent solution than death. Fair enough. Um, Tim Roth is excellent, as usual, in this movie. That, Tim Roth is a deeply underappreciated talent. I, uh, it's so funny, because I wish Tim Roth had been a good guy in this, because I so wanted to cheer Tim Roth. I, you know, I, I wanted him to be like Mr. Green from Clue. You know, at the end, I wanted him to be like, ah, I've been waiting for this gang all along. You know, I am Inspector So-and-So, and I'm here to save the day. Like, I didn't want him to be part of the gang. I'm kind of with you there. He's a very endearing character. He gets, I believe he gets to use his natural accent for once. But, I mean, the guy's made a career playing villains. You know, of course he was going to be on the wrong side of this. Um, Michael Madsen looked like he was asleep through most of this. (laughs) Michael Madsen has in his contract, his life contract, whenever Quentin Tarantino makes a movie, if there is any possibility that he can be cast, he will be. Right, even if he's doing nothing, which is pretty much what he does throughout this movie. He had a couple of good lines, but as a character, he was a non-entity. Yeah. Bruce Dern is fine as a cranky old man who gets, you know, murdered. (laughs) I, again, to those of us who were raised on John Wayne movies, there are certain cinematic acts that we will never forgive. And, and this is not just fans of John Wayne, but fan, you know, for any fans of any genre, there are certain acts that an actor does in the service of their story that, for whatever reason, are indelibly stuck to them as they move on to other projects within their life. Uh, 
Jesse Plemons, I believe, is the name of the actor, in Breaking Bad, who shoots the poor unarmed kid who was out on his dirt bike for no reason other than he kind of saw them steal stuff from a train. In right. Cold Blood, murders a 12-year-old. I don't think he's ever going to fully be able to live down that moment. Whatever else he does for the rest of his career, that is going to be stuck to his forehead. Bruce Dern shot John Wayne in the back. And to anyone who was a fan of John Wayne's, and I am, I was, again, selection of about 12 or 15 John Wayne movies that I was basically raised on, the Cowboys being one of them, you're, just, you're never going to forgive that. You're never going to let that go in some ways. I mean, again, I, I've, I've never met Bruce Dern, but for all the interviews I've seen, he's a perfectly nice human being. But whenever um, I see him on screen, I want him to die. So Samuel L. Jackson goading him into committing suicide, basically, I, I was okay with that. I want to talk about one one uh, chapter in, from the movie, and then we should probably start to make our way out of this review. And that yeah. is the flashback to when the Domergue uh, gang shows up to the haberdashery and... I almost question the necessity of that whole sequence. Well, here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of the, of, of the beginning of Inglorious Bastards, where you have um, what's his face there? What's the actor? Christoph. Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz. Um, people listening to this review, yeah, there's there's the one guy who goes into these really in-depth scientific explanations and things, and the one guy who can't remember English. And it's, <laughs> So Christoph Waltz, you know, who comes in and he has this really long conversation uh, and, you know, he, he does the thing with the milk and all that. And then you pan down and you realize that there's there'd be Jews afoot, you know, hiding in a cramped space. Um, I, and, and I love that whole sequence so much in that movie. And so there's so much tension, you know, is, is he going to find them or isn't he, you know? And it just builds up because they show you the they show you the women midway through this long ass conversation. That's what I uh, and speaking of that movie, I love that so much because the first half of it, you're never quite sure if he's actually guilty, if you know guilty, but if he's actually harboring people or if Hans Landa is just kind of on a snipe hunt. Right. So then you realize no, he's he's on to him, and then it slowly becomes more apparent that no, he's not just on to him. He's he knows he right. actually knows what's going on here, right? And rather than be an animal about it, you know, he's just a very subtle way of doing things. But now, now take that sort of building tension and 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 attempt to do the same thing. Only let's not have any tension this time. That's kind of what I got from that chapter. You know, everybody in that haberdashery is doomed. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess there was supposed to be the tension between you know you know who the crooks are now you know who the gang is, um, and you know that everybody in that haberdashery is going to fight it. But I but because of the way it's done, I I wasn't as like on the edge of my seat. I just kept I, I was more just like instead of like in Inglorious Bastards, I want I want the Jews to to not be found. And I'm watching this, and I'm, and, it, and it's, I swear to God, I'm going to say this, and it's going to be like, ah, oh, racist. It's not. It's really not. 
I just couldn't wait for him to die. Like, could we kill them and get on with this already? Because instead of doing that at the beginning of the movie, where I, where I don't know where this is going yet, I don't know why you know why any of this is important, and I might have had more of a connection with Minnie and the rest of the people in the haberdashery. I at this point I've spent most of the movie with everybody else, and I know they're dead. I don't know what why they're dead. I just know they're dead. And so showing how they died was kind of like okay, you know. It's, I think it's like, you know, that I think that same idea could have been expressed in a much better way if, again, after both Walton Goggins and Samuel L. Jackson get shot, you have them holding their gun, and Tim Roth has also been shot, and somehow Michael Madsen avoided it, and they know there's somebody in the basement because that's who shot Samuel L. Jackson. I think if you let a shot and kind of in pain and pissed off Tim Roth and Michael Madsen just narrate, you know, have them, you know, okay, so have them ask what the hell's going on and let those two kind of talk themselves through it. Maybe even throw Channing Tatum a bone if you like him. I don't, but if you do and let him speak from the basement, you know, just this voice kind of coming up through the floorboards detailing right. how they, you know, what they did. Right. Where's Minnie? We shot her on me. You know, that's what not, not only do you save about 10 minutes of airtime, that feels a lot. That feels a lot longer. You also get, you know, you let Michael Madsen and Tim Roth do some more stuff, right? And they just, both you know, could, and that, and they both could have stood to do a little more in that movie. But that's the thing. It's like they, if you're gonna murder somebody on screen, they either have to serve as a plot device, or these are characters that you should have been spending some time with in order to feel something when they're gone. And they were nothing. That. You could have this movie goes on whether you know, whether or not you show them being shot. When Samuel Jackson does the bit about the stew, you already know they're dead at that point. You know that Bob sh- that, that, that at the very least Bob killed them and took over the haberdashery. So whether or not you show that scene is irrelevant. I was like, yeah, the, that that whole chapter to me was a waste. And while I enjoyed the mini character, that's just my own personal thing. I thought she was funny. But I still didn't care when she died. <laughs> I felt bad for the chicken plucker. <laughs> Again, I feel it that that whole point and whatnot could have been gotten across in a much smoother way. And again, probably shave ten to fifteen minutes of runtime. Yeah. Um, all right. So as we do with, with all of our reviews, this is becoming sort of a a, a Rattledge and Broadcasting movie review thing. I'm going to share with Robert. Mark's going to read reviews, and I'm going to bang my head against a wall and marvel at the idiocy of my fellow man. Um, Okay, so this is from Film Comet Magazine, Stephen Mayers. It's as if Tarantino, believing the interrogation prologue to Inglourious Bastards to be the best written scene of his career, undertook to redraft the sequence at nearly feature length. Uh, There's a fundamental misconception from which that person has approached this. Okay. On the one hand, I would absolutely agree that that again, that opening sequence from *Inglorious Bastards* is flawless, utterly flawless. The locked room, closed door mystery, or you know, strangers locked in a hotel while there's a storm and the power's out and we've got no cell phone coverage—that's not unique to Tarantino. That's a trope that's been around for quite some time, sir, and has been used very effectively from time to time. 
But uh, continue with your uh, tormenting you. No, I, I was speaking to the reviewer there, not you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what Jeff else do we Baker. got here? This is Jeff Baker from the Oregonian. Uh, it just doesn't work. The pacing is off. There's no tension. The connections don't stick. All that talk leads to a lot of bloody action, but no payoffs, since the talk meant nothing and the characters that were saying it weren't memorable. Okay, that's bullshit. Yeah. When I, my brother gave me the stink eye, we all went. Uh, the family went out to Texas Roadhouse tonight. That's why we started an hour later. And I thank Mark for accommodating me. I referred to the American Northwest as maybe the worst part of the country. Now, I lived in Oregon for five years. I lived in Washington when I was younger than that. There's a lot of good that comes out of that part of the world. My brother gave me the stink eye when I referred to those as such. Of course, he had to concede the point that Portland has become an absolute pit. But this is what gives that part of the world a bad name. People like this and their hyper-liberalism and not under, just a fundamental failure to grasp concepts. You thought no one from this was memorable? Were you high? <laughs> unable to resist imbibing a little bit because you, have, you don't have the comprehension skills to understand the tension that is being built through dialogue. All right. Um, this one I'm reading just because of who it is. This is Joe Morgenstern from the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal, a paper that a, paper, a website that I read very frequently and get a lot of my news from. The hateful eight wears out its welcome well before the halfway point, leaving the equivalent of a whole other movie to sit and suffer through. I feel there's a somewhat valid there it, within that sensationalism and an attempt to grab clicks. There is something of a valid point. Again, this movie is three hours long. That's not me exaggerating. That's not me playing up, you know, hype or whatnot. I'm not, again, this is a movie that is literally, what, 150 minutes? 167 minutes, thank you. This is a long movie. And if you don't have the patience or the interest to actually watch what's going on, you're going to be bored out of your mind after the first half because you'd re you're trained to think that, well, Michael Bay is done blowing stuff up by now. The movie should be over. <laughs> this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. By the way, these are all top critics, okay? Best of the best, mind you. Top, top marks for all these folks. An epic work of self-indulgence and smug riffing stringing together tropes from TV and screen westerns and closed-room whodunits. The hateful eight announces itself with all the pop and circumstance of a mid-century cinema spectacle. And, gave it, and he gave it a two out of four. Hi, have you not ever seen a Quentin Tarantino movie before, sir? <laughs> oh, he Wait, plays on tropes and stereotypes and he draws in... Yes! That's been his bag from the beginning! <laughs> Um, this is great. This is the New York Post. Lou Luminick. All this hype and for what? Three hours or so set mostly in a single room with the unsavory guests and staff trade juvenile and racist insults, periodically murdering each other. I was hoping to get it over with already well before the intermission. Again, if you don't have the patience or the interest to actually listen to the dialogue and watch what's going on, 
then this comes across as very, again, self-indulgent, juvenile. And I understand your perspective if you approach it within the context of what you have been taught to like by contemporary blockbusters. I have to say, the, 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 po- the political discussion that takes place in the stagecoach was actually one of my favorite exchanges of dialogue. But if you're not willing to listen to it or understand its importance in establishing these characters, then, yeah, I think I, we're at a point where I think the height of, uh, of movie-going civilization is going to be the Transformers movies. Yeah. And that's why we can't have nice things. Um, some of <laughs> this is the New York Times. Okay, so again, I, I'm not even reading the ones from like you know, uh, I, I have blueballs.com or you know, or some of these other places. I'm reading like legit sources here. Okay, yeah, and these are all giving rotten reviews. Top critic A.O. Scott, New York Times. Some that of the guys justice. A.O. Scott is simply a malcontent. <laughs> well, let's see what this malcontent's all about these days. Some of the film's ugliness is therefore a sign of integrity and of relevance, but much of it seems dumb and ill-considered as if Mr. Tarantino's intellectual ambition and his storytelling discipline has failed him at the same time. See, I don't think it failed him. I think if I were to sum up kind of the issue here, this might be one of those classic cases of your reach exceeding your grasp. Because there are things within this movie that are done, that are touched on, that are expanded upon, that are discussed very intelligently. There are other things that, for reasons, unbeknownst to me in many cases, just kind of fall a bit by the wayside. This is the last one. David Edelstein from New York Magazine slash Vulture. Top critic. The movie is a lot of gore over a lot of nothing. I hope that won't be Tarantino's epitaph. So we have now just spent the better part of almost 90 minutes discussing apparently nothing, Mr. Winfrey. Hope you're satisfied. Uh, No, we spent almost 90 minutes discussing nothing when we lambasted Fantastic Four. (laughs) Because I maintain Fantastic Four is nothing. There is no character. There is no action. There is no story arc. There is nothing to that movie. So I just want to go over this with you real quick because, you know, as I think if anybody were to look at us and say what makes them different from the bevy of film critics populating YouTube and, and the internet at large, it would be we here at the Rattlers and Broadcasting uh, Network like to focus on the numbers. So I have up here Quentin Tarantino's filmography chart. And it says the, it's got, it shows the budget and the box office and the Rotten Tomato scores. And I think these are interesting. Uh, I want to go over each one of these with you really quick. Right. Do you mind? No, no, go ahead. Because the hateful eight is now coming across. Uh, t- the hateful eight is to Quentin Tarantino what the good dinosaur is to Pixar, based on what I'm looking at. Okay. <clears throat> so you have Reservoir Dogs, right? Had a budget of $1.2 million. You know, he shot that literally on like a, on like a credit card. Um, at the box office, it made $2.8 million. And it's got a Rotten Tomato score of 92%, um, one of the highest. And in, in fact, it is the highest, uh, only second to Pulp Fiction, which was made on an $8 million budget and made $213.9 million with a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
And everything else is going to be everything else he's made since then is well below 90, 93, 92 percent. By the way, but really? Moving on. Yes, on Rotten Tomatoes, Jackie Brown, which I loved, by the way, twelve million dollars, thirty nine point seven million uh, box office, eighty seven percent Rotten Tomatoes. Kill Bill Volume One. Uh, I, hang on, before we get too far into Kill Bill. I maintain that Miramax deciding to make him release that as two movies instead of one three-hour movie absolutely gutted it. <laughs> Kill Bill Volume 1, $30 million budget, $180.9 million at the box office, 85%. Kill Bill Volume 2, $30 million budget, $152.2 million, 84%. Which I'm going to go ahead and say... I understand what you're saying from a crash point of view, but from a financial point of view, they were $400 million. They probably did the right thing. I understand. The same way that you did the right thing by splitting up The Hobbit into three movies or the the third mocking, you know, the third Hunger Games movie into two parts. You or utterly. Yeah. You just. You are gutting your fan base. I think it's sad because I think Kill Bill Volume 2 is such a really well-told revenge story. Right. That the fact Death that story. you had you had so yeah. much of one that just uh, fell flat because he had to flesh it out by 20 to 30 minutes mm-hmm. in order to make it its own feature-length thing. And then there's editing that had to be done because the, M- the MPAA decided to... Uh, the, the production story of the Kill Bill saga is actually very fascinating in and of itself. So Death Proof, which was one half of the Grind House features, along with something from Planet, Planet X. Planet Terror. Planet, Planet Terror, Terror by Robert Rodriguez. Um, a $67 million budget made $24.4 million. Yeah, they took a bath on that one. Grindhouse was a great concept, but it was marketed poorly. And again, Death Proof had some issues of execution. Well, it also got 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the he came cast. roaring back. He came roaring back with Inglorious Bastards. Made on a $70 million budget. Ka-ching! $321.5 million at the box office. And an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, I maintain that's his. That, I maintain that's his masterpiece. That is one of my favorite movies. Well, it, he uh, he outdid himself next time around with Django Unchained, which was a hundred million dollar budget, uh, made four hundred and twenty five point four million dollars at the box office, and got an eighty eight percent at the uh, Rotten Tomatoes. What did they spend a hundred million dollars on in that movie? Well, it was a lot of land, Robert Winfrey. It's good to have land. Lots of land. Yes. And finally, under starry skies above. And finally, we have the Hateful Eight. Currently uh, shot for $44 million, currently sitting at $30.6 million and 74, 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. Though, this one's getting beat up in the box office. For one, you know, it's, it's got the, you've got the issue of it coming out against uh, Star Wars, you know, which, which today domestically became the number one movie in North America um, of well, all time. not adjusted for inflation. Not adjusted, oh, for fuck's sake, yes, not adjusted for inflation. Got it. Um, 
Look, it's if you're going to have that discussion, we have to acknowledge just how many tickets Gone with the Wind sold. Nope. I don't have to. I don't have to acknowledge anything. Um. Yeah, they hate. I'm actually on Box Office Mojo right now. Uh. Right now, the domestic lifetime, the total lifetime grosses, yeah, is 32 million dollars. Um. That's the domestic total. Uh. Has it been? Has it opened anywhere else? It might have. It might not have. I honestly don't know. Um, yeah, I don't see where it's open. Yeah, it's not showing a worldwide growth. So yeah, it's only made thirty-two million dollars. But the, but uh, what I was saying is this: not only has it got some stiff competition at the box office, um, the seventy millimeter issue uh, caused it to not be shown in a lot of theaters. Plus, it had like this really weird like. Uh, I mean, we're doing this a week later than I had intended because I thought it was coming out on one day. I thought it was coming out yeah. on December 25th, which it was, but only in limited limited theaters. And then it did a worldwide release on December 30th. Like, like, why are you dribbling this thing out? Just put the fucking thing out already. And then you had the problem of, like, projectors not working. So, yeah, this movie has had, you know, it, it is... And then Quentin Tarantino told a story about how they were going to have two weeks starting December 25th at uh, some theater in Los Angeles. <laughs> and Disney basically said, pull that movie and play Star Wars over the entire holiday season, or you will not be able to play Star Wars in any of your arc theaters at all. And so they caved and out went the hateful eight. So whether or not this movie uh, should have done better, it's, you know, um, I'd argue uh, again. In a perfect world, should it should this movie make money? Yes, uh, I especially with a relatively small budget. But you know, then there's should, and now reality is kind of kicked in, and there's all these other things going on. Um, here's the last thing I'm going to say. We've now seen him do two westerns in a row. Uh, do something else, Quentin. We got it. You do westerns, great. Maybe better than anybody else in modern cinema. Uh, do something else now, <laughs> okay? Take us, take us somewhere else, Quentin. Somewhere else in time. Maybe come back to modern times. Maybe just pick a different time in, in history. You know, go go to the go to the Revolutionary War. <laughs> go go to the '60s. Go somewhere, but for fuck's sake, stay out stay out of the old west. I can see your perspective there. Two two movies and six hours later, I'm done with this part of the world. In this time of the world. Fair enough. As someone who was, again, kind of raised on Westerns, I think the lack of good Westerns being released as a general rule is kind of a shame because it's a great medium. It's a great you know, setting to tell stories in. It's just kind of being overlooked. But I'm with you in kind of wanting to see Quentin Tarantino maybe try something else. Uh, so we'll see what he does next. I mean, even if this one winds up not making money, it's, it's Tarantino still has not only a devoted following, but a lot of name value. And one movie that underperforms is not going to alter that. Sure. I mean, I will go see whatever the next pile of shit he puts out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll go see. No, that would be Michael Bay. And I think you're actually not going to. 
Um, no, I will. Uh, I'll go see just about anything by Quentin Tarantino. I still think he's a master craftsman. Uh, I just this one, like I said, it's not a bad movie. I just was underwhelmed by how it it's ended. We- it's weird in that all of the individual pieces of this movie are great, but for some reason they don't quite fit together. I mean, I feel the same way in some respects about The Dark Knight Rises. Almost everything about it, almost all the scenes taken individually are individually great. But when you put them all together, there's something that just doesn't quite translate. Well, this doesn't have a narrative problem. That did. But I would would liken it to, you know, you taking – I've actually seen this happen in Top Chef when I used to watch that show, people would take these great, crisp, wonderful, fresh ingredients and put them together, and it just wouldn't work. Individually, the ingredients themselves were awesome and tasted good all on their own, but when you put them together, they came up with just a terrible mash of awfulness. Yeah, as a guy who watches Chops to Kill kill Time, guilty, uh, I've heard that quite a few times. And so that's kind of what I my takeaway from this was individually, yeah, it's it, it it it's less than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Well, except for Channing Tatum, who contributes nothing, but dies, um, so it's okay. Oh, uh, Mona Mia, I think you are very wrong. I am the Gambit, eh? If that's the accent he's going to use for Gambit, I'm going to throw something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never said I was an actor. No, no, I actually meant the act. No, I meant the accent he uses in this movie. If that's the accent he's using for Gambit, I'm going to throw something because it's not Cajun. Cajun. <laughs> that's not Cajun either. <laughs> I can't. I can't wait till Gambit comes out and I can torture you with that. That movie is going to fail miserably. Well, let's let's. Why don't we deal with the other failures that are coming up soon before we deal with that particular failure, okay? That's coming out Yeah, Deadpool's coming out in the near future. That's going to fail. <laughs> okay, Captain Happy. So, Long Road to Ruin was supposed to Deadpool come back. Deadpool is a stupid gag that gained mainstream popularity because everyone likes breaking the fourth wall. Can, can you, like, save your hatred for, for Deadpool for when it actually comes out and the movie fails? Oh, I say the movie is going to fail. I don't mean financially. It's going to make money financially. Because there's a bunch of idiots who think Deadpool's an interesting character. Yes, and then there's people like our friend Gavin who think Ryan Reynolds is the bee's knees. <sighs> you know, again, if I didn't dislike Ryan Reynolds before, I watched R.I.P.D. on television a couple of nights ago. I, if I didn't have a reason before to dislike him, I darn sure do now, because that movie sucks. So Long Road to Ruin was supposed to come back this week, <clears throat> but Sean uh, was not available this week to proceed into uh, the Middle Earth. So instead, the schedule has been rearranged, much like Limp Biscuit. Get it? Rearranged? Huh? Actually, no. Kindly explain oh, I, that I, one to me. It's a, it's a song. Olympic fans get it. In any case. <clears throat> so um, you're going to be explaining it to them as well then. The totality so, of our audience didn't get your joke either. So. 
when I'm going. All right, so the Thursday shows will actually return next week, January 14th, one day before my big date with Melissa. It says it, says it on my calendar. This is the point of the show where I just start reading you guys my personal calendar. <laughs> on, uh, on January 15th, I'm going to see Jim Norton of Opie and Anthony fame. Um, and a cameo in Opie and Anthony have fame? So on the 14th, uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom will be kicking off 2016 with a Kill Switch Engage retrospective. And then we will begin in the Metal Hammer, Jesus, and then Long Road to Ruin will be back on the 21st with Lord of the Rings. Then on Yay. the 28th, then on the 28th, we'll be reviewing Megadeth's Dystopia. And on February 4th, we'll be doing The Hobbit. Um, Yay! Followed, followed uh, the week after that by Shaft, because it's Black History Month. Get it? Uh, Metal Hammer of Doom, we'll be reviewing Ghost Lights by Avantasia. And then on February 25th, uh, we will be reviewing the Beverly Hills the Beverly Hills Cop Trilogy for Long Road oh, to Ruin. just go off a cliff so fast. <laughs> and on March 3rd, we will be reviewing Anthrax's For All the Kings. Now, in the meantime, meanwhile, back in the city, um, we will be, Robert and I will be off for the next three weeks. We will be back on February 3rd to review Kung Fu Panda 3. Yes. And then we'll be back again. Panda 2. It's good, actually. I really enjoyed it. My son, yeah, he could kill us. Um, so we'll be then. Uh, so we got Kung Fu Panda 3 on the 3rd of February. On February 10th, we'll be reviewing Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. And on the 17th, the aforementioned Deadpool. And that pretty much sums up everything. It's going to be a rough one, guys. <laughs> Kung Fu Panda 3, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and Deadpool. But by February 24th, I'm pretty sure Robert Winfrey's going to go, go, going to quit this podcast. No, no, no. I, I, I'm like a bad penny. I always turn up. <laughs> yeah, that's that, 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 that. But don't be, but don't, don't fret none, because in March we've got Zootopia our in defense of man of steel and finally what we've all been waiting for batman v superman dawn of justice yes can't wait wherein mark will uh you know verbally fillet the great vi- you know the visuals and oh it's batman and superman on the same screen and i calmly and rationally explain what a monumental charlie foxtrot that movie's going to be charlie foxtrot yeah i don't swear at least I'm doing my best to cut back. Uh, so when you say Charlie Foxtrot, you are trying to say piece of shit. No, I'm trying to say cluster. Ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right, I'm picking up what you're putting down. All right, so that's all I've got. Um, unless everyone wants to know what I'm going fishing with my father. Uh, that's all I've got on my calendar. Robert? Mark, if anyone wanted to do you harm, you've given them more than enough information about your whereabouts for them to do it. We, we're okay. Um, well, let's see. On the 16th, I'll be at the circus. Now, go ahead. Uh, all right. This Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show is going to be previewing UFC Fight Night 81. 
Dominic Cruz is back, and after the belt, he never lost. He'll be taking on uh, reigning champion TJ Dillashaw. Jeff Harris and I are going to shout at each other because he thinks Dillashaw is going to win, and I laugh because Cruz has taken that. But he and I are going to, again, yell is an exaggeration. We're going to talk it over. He's going to make his case. I'm going to make mine. We're going to break down the the whole main card. That particular event is on the 17th, which is the week after that, uh, which is a Sunday, so there will be no show that Sunday as I will be providing live coverage of that event over in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. The week after, we'll be reviewing that one, and I believe we'll have a preview. I have to, again, look at it and sort out all the dates for how the UFC has lined things up because every now and then they throw curveballs just to make my life a little bit more difficult. But apart from that, again, Mark and I are off for a bit because I have yet to, I have not yet seen The Revenant and I haven't found someone who wants to talk about it with me if I decide it's worth talking about. And I might just enjoy going to see a movie that I don't have to review, you know, not think critically about every little detail that comes across the screen. But at the very least, Mark and I will be back together for Kung Fu Panda 3, wherein I will wonder why, oh why, oh why, does Brian Cranston get to voice act a panda, but for some reason, they thought Jesse Eisenberg was a good choice for Lex Luthor. I'd also like to remind everyone, depending on where you're listening to this, go check out my YouTube page. Uh, it's just Mark Rattledge on YouTube. Uh, we, have, uh, re- we have reviews up from previous movies we did, like Star Wars, uh, Long Road to Ruin, The Mighty Ducks is up there. My pitches for movies, like the Defenders uh, miniseries on Netflix, is up there, as well as my pitches for Batman movies, with uh, directed and starring Ben Affleck. Uh, <laughs> directed by Ben Affleck is fine. He actually has a good eye for detective stories. But get, do uh, not put him in front of the camera. So I'm trying to trying to get people to go to the YouTube page and check the, check that stuff out. It's basically a mirror image of what's on my blog talk radio, but some people will prefer watching uh, YouTube videos rather than listening to the same material on a podcast. <laughs> what also, fun- also, funnily enough, that's the only place you can hear Mark and I review Transformers Age of Extinction from a couple of years ago. Yes, which is a highlight, by the way. If you, if you thought, well, Robert Winfrey and Mark Radlett seem to get along way too well in these movies. No, no. You have to hear Age of Extinction and us do screaming at one another. Uh, Mark, I have to mention that your impression of Michael Bay as an autistic man uh, was a big hit at my house. <laughs> Glad everyone enjoyed that. That was another one that featured my wife un- uh, unwittingly being drawn into a podcast she had no 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 uh, desire to be part of. But yeah, Mark and I uh, we disagreed on that one about points in it. So it, which ha- has happened in the past? He and I have disagreed, which is fine. Mark and I are intelligent adults who can disagree and agree to disagree and not swear blood oaths of vengeance and start hurling insults at each other. Uh, there's also some earlier reviews I did way back in the day. For um, My wife and I reviewed the Sex and the City 2 movie. Uh, I think I did a solo review of uh, Up, Up and uh, Toy Story 3. So those are all up there, too, plus a music video I, I did movies. of uh, Brock Lesnar defending his title against uh, Shane Carwin. 
set to the baddest of the best. So check out check out my YouTube page. It's fun of fun stuff. Full of fun stuff. Yet yet another avenue wherein you can achieve content that is provided by us here on the Ride Legend Broadcasting Network. And I must ask again, to anyone using Adblock, if you would kindly whitelist us, we don't make money off of this uh, at all. So, but what little we do make, we'd like to continue making. So if you could just whitelist us on YouTube, provided YouTube doesn't start scamming you, in which case, you know, send them angry emails or, you know, rocks through the window. I don't know. Whatever the kids are doing these days. All right. I think that just about does it for for us. That does. All right. Uh, if you, again, if you're a fan of Tarantino, go see this movie. If you are not, then nothing he does is going to appeal to you in general, so save yourself the aggravation. Now, if you don't know that you like Tarantino, but you don't, but you, you want to see if you'd like his movies without actually watching any of them, go watch The Deer Hunter. If you can make it through, at the very least, the wedding sequence of The Deer Hunter, you'll be okay in a Quentin Tarantino movie. I actually like The Deer Hunter. I didn't say I didn't. I understand your point, though. It's a very... There's a lot of similarities in his style and kind of how The Deer Hunter is presented. Yes. So, before you before you decide to start tackling Tarantino movies, go watch The Deer Hunter, and then you'll know. And knowing is half the battle. Robert? Or at the very least, uh, watch some of his other movies, you know, Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards are both exceptional pieces of filmmaking, and they'll give you a good feel for his style. All right. On that note, Mark and I will see you in three weeks. I may or may not have something in the interim with another guest on. Probably not. I'm okay taking a break from reviewing movies every now and then. But we'll be back for Kung Fu Panda 3. Yeah, because yeah, Jack Black Jack is apparently Black still a thing. thing. <laughs> all right, everybody. All right. For Mark Radlich, I'm Robert Winfrey. Until then, reminding you all to continue to be well, be safe, and behave.